We are glad you're here. I hope you're enjoying our service. Bright and early, sunny day. Are you excited? Well, it is a nice day out there, isn't it? We're wiping the sleep out of our eyes. We're okay. Yeah, it's great. Before we we plow through our our, uh, back to our series in Ephesians, I'd like uh, somebody to grab Pastor Tim and bring him out here, Tim Weishart. And also I'd like Larry Bilbrey to come out. And Larry, they have a mic for you right back there. Um, And while they're gathering, if somebody could find Tim, who knows where he's at? I mean, he moves fast after communion. He was kind of shifty heading out of there, so who knows? Thanks. I'll go find Tim. Come on on down, Tim. Look, he wanted to come down the center aisle, I think. No. No, Tim, Tim doesn't know what's going on, but come on up, Tim. Years ago, uh, well, I'll, I'll just, Tim, come on up on the platform here. And Larry Bilbrey is representing our elder board uh, this morning. We have a little presentation uh, for Tim, so come on up. Yeah, we want to, uh, can you hear that? We want to honor Tim for his service here. I remember when Kevin first said he wants to bring this guy on, I'm thinking, okay. He says he's a real student of the word, and he's proven that to us over the years. So for 25 years of service, we'd like to give him a gift certificate. We thought we could send him someplace, but uh, him and his wife might want to decide that choice. So we're going to give that to them and let them decide. So Tim, I want to thank you for your service and appreciate your time here. Thank you very much. Love you, man. 20, 25 years Tim has been here. I remember after I came as a young man, uh, I was trying to hire some people to help. Our church was growing. And, and I actually, the first time I had an opportunity to hire somebody, it was for a youth pastor. And I approached him. He was my brother-in-law, so I had met him. Uh, we went to seminary uh, uh, together. We overlapped a little bit. And I knew a lot about it. And I remember before I even came to Fremont, before I was ever a pastor, I thought, man, if I'm ever a pastor, like, like I hope to be, I would love to work at the same church as this guy. And, uh, and then turns out later, he, he started in church ministry, um, maybe before I did, I can't exactly remember, but after I got here, uh, we had a position of as a youth pastor, and I called Tim, and I said, Tim, we got a youth pastor position. I know you're working as a youth pastor now. Would you consider coming to Fremont and joining us and doing this? And he said, no. <laughs> and so he, he didn't come. I hired somebody else. And then another position opened up uh, for adult ministry, and I thought, you know what? You know, I, this would be perfect for Tim but I know he won't come. But I called him anyway. Hey, Tim, you know, would you even consider coming? And, and I'm not even expecting anything that time. And he said, I'll think about it. You know, it was great. So he came 25 years of ministry. I know a lot of you, like me, have benefited uh, from being under his teaching. And let's just give him uh, one more a round of appreciation. For my 25 years, I don't know if, if some of you were here, uh, they actually, the, the board, which is representing all of you, sent Pam and I to Hawaii, you know, a trip. And uh, this time it's that kind of a gift for Tim, but 
We didn't specify that had to be used on a trip. We just figured, you know, we didn't want him to get a virus or anything. So we just said, hey, <laughs> do with this whatever you want. So uh, we're, we're excited about that. So we lost a little sleep. I don't know if you noticed, but I, it, I lost an hour of sleep. I didn't have time to shave this morning. And so, you know, that happened. But uh, we, we are diving in to Ephesians. We're now in Ephesians chapter 5. And we've been learning how Paul started off talking about theology and then he started applying that to our lives. He's been getting practical. He's been saying that we as Christians should imitate Christ. We should follow him. We should live for him. He's telling us that we should put on the new person, the new self. He's telling us that, that we should be filled with the spirit of God. And, and that's when we yield to follow him. And now, if that wasn't practical enough... Now he's going to get really practical and he's going to step on our toes. He's going to tick some people off in here because he's going to get right down to some of the most important issues we have in our life. And that comes with relationships. And we have a, a big section to cover this morning. So I'm going to try to kick it in gear and get through this. But Paul is going to deal with how we as a Christian, as we follow Christ, how we should do marriage family, and work. And so we're going to dive right in there. And so hang on with me as we get there. And before we jump in, we're, we're talking about following Christ. I, I think you've heard this morning already that we have baptism coming up. If you are a person who has committed your life to Christ, you've become a believer, you've decided on Jesus... Well, part of that demonstrating change that we talk about all the time, part of the way that shows up in your life, the very first thing really is believer's baptism where you, as Christ's example, we follow him and then we, after we become a believer, we are placed underwater, baptism by immersion. And uh, if you've not followed the Lord in believer's baptism, you need to grab a card, fill it out, and make sure it gets to the information table before you leave today. That, you got that? Right, of course, your, your first service people here on time change Sunday. So, you know, you guys are probably all squared away, all right? I'm just saying. All right, here, here we go. Um, and he starts with uh, following God in marriage. And uh, as a culture... It's amazing to me that, that we are so arrogant as a culture on how relationships ought to be. We have everybody, you know, saying that this is right and no other way could be right. And, and we're so arrogant the way relationships, including marriage, could be. But we look at our culture and, and how's that working? Not so great, right? We've probably all heard that the, the statistics, which are a little outdated, but... Uh, we hear that, you know, there's a 50% divorce rate. And, uh, you know, and, and, and marriages are, are just fractured. And then there's a lot of people who decide, well, because marriage is so bad, we won't even get married, we'll just live together. Although every study they've ever done says that if you do get married after that, you'll have increased chances of divorce. But we have this myth in our culture that says, no, live together first, that's gonna help us figure out marriage. It always does the opposite, but nobody looks at the statistics on that. As a matter of fact, and I was uh, reading some statistics just a few days ago. 
on marriage because there's this, along with the 50% divorce rate, is that it's no different inside the church than out of the church, and that's not exactly true. In one of these studies I was reading, they actually accounted for religion and they uh, started classifying people, you know, Catholic or uh, conservative, theologically conservative Protestants where us as evangelicals would fit in and, uh, and, and Jewish uh, faith and then non-believers, you know, no, no faith, atheists. And they did all that. And where we fit, where evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians would fit, were 30% less likely divorced than any, than they were the most, they were the least likely divorced than any other group, and that was 35% less likely divorced than somebody who had no faith. But, and, you know, so it, it is different in the church, as it should be, but still, there's still a big percentage of divorce in the church, which just reminds us that when we become a believer, that doesn't mean all our problems go away. We still wrestle through things. There are still issues in our life that we have to submit ourselves to Christ. We have, and, and sometimes, because of who we're married to, that, that's, that's never going to happen. So, so we get all that. But uh, biblical marriage, we're reminded in Scripture, is not a declaration of present love. It's a promise of future love. And almost everybody does that at weddings. But it seems by the stats that it's Christians who take that more seriously a promise of future love and we as believers have instructions from the creator of marriage you talk to atheistic anthropologists today and ask them you know where did marriage come from and they'll always say prehistory meaning there's never been a time recorded that there wasn't a thing called marriage Although people use different words, but one man, one woman, beginning a family. It's always been, right, because it came from our creator. And our creator has given us instructions for believers to make marriage work. And so I'm going to start reading where we left off last time. Mike stopped at verse 21 in Ephesians 5. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But we're going to pick it up at verse 22. Are you ready? Are you ready? All right, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands. Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And, and then Paul describes how Christ, what love is, how Christ loved the church, how he gave himself for the church, and how that's an example, a model for Christian husbands to love their wives. And then he wraps that up in verse 33. He says, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now what I just read is controversial in our culture today. We all get that, right? And some of you right now, even on Time Change Sunday, even in first service, you're, you're sitting there going and, and you're irritated. And you're getting kind of mad 
and you're just a little bit disgusted. And, and so a lot of times when we talk about this, I sort of try to get a lot of filler and I sort of try to ease into this and kind of sugarcoat it. I just don't have time to do that today, okay? <laughs> so we're just gonna cut to the chase, all right? We're just gonna cut to the chase. Are you ready? Yeah, some of you are. Okay, here's how it goes. Paul is saying that there are implications to following Jesus. That if we're truly a Christ follower, it shows up in our lives. We've been talking about, for that, talking about that for the last several weeks. If we truly follow Christ, we have it right in our, our motto, you know, we demonstrate change. It shows up in our life. And he's saying, hey, how it shows up for you wives, respect your husbands. Or if, if I'll just say it a little more strongly, submit yourself to your husband, submit to his leadership. And, and I know when I say that, we have some here thinking, hey, it's that verse right there. That's why I left the church. Some of you are thinking, hey, it's that verse right there. That's why I'll never become a Christian. And I don't mean just women. Men and women are divided on this issue. And some people are saying, yeah, that's, that's what I can't handle about Christianity. And so people find ways, Christians find ways to push back on this. And I'll give you the classic way people push back. Because verse 22 starts with wives, submit to your husbands or be subject to them. People will push back and say, you know what? The verb submits, not even in verse 22. The verb comes from verse 21, and verse 21 says, submit to everybody, and here's what it says. And so he's talking about a string of things, be filled with the Spirit. Mike was talking about that last time. And then verse 21 says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so people will say, here's the pushback. There you have it. We're all to submit to each other. So it's not really wives have to submit to their husbands. Yeah, wives have to do that, but the husbands also have to submit to the wives and everything else. And so it's all equal. It's all mutual, which is kind of a, a that works great for our culture, but it's just not what the Greek means here. So I just got to be honest with you on this. People say this all the time, but that, that Greek word for subject, it means submit to an authority. It's actually always one direction. It's never mutual or reciprocal. It just means submit to an authority in your life. And here's what Paul's saying. When he says submit to one another, he's writing a church in Ephesus and he's writing a church here, right here too, by extension. And he's saying, hey, all of you guys, Submit to each other. And now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. And he lists, he lists three pairs of relationships. And all three of those back then were in the home. Three relationships in the home. And each one has a subordinate and an authority. That's just what the word means. It doesn't mean submit to each other. It means no one submit to each other and some of you need to submit to that person and others of you need to submit to that person and others of you need to submit to that person. Submit to each other in that way. And we know that for sure because of the way the word is used. It's never ever used 
in a mutual thing or a reciprocal thing where we submit to, two people submit to each other. Never use that way. Word cannot mean that. But that's how, kind of went off on a rabbit trail, sorry. But that's how, that's what people say all the time and it's wrong. It's saying one person should voluntarily submit yourself to, some, to a head or an authority. And our culture hates that. Our culture will not stand for this. And it's because we know that men and women are equal in value and worth and dignity. And of course that's right. By the way, the reason we believe that is because of Christian people who came before us and it was people who believed the Bible that changed this for women, this concept of that men and women are equal more than any other group of people in history. So you got to know that. So we have all this bashing of Christians today that, oh, Christians suppress women. No, Christians have always elevated women. All through history, look at it, it's mainly the church that elevated women. Just like it was mainly the church that caused slavery to end. We'll get to that. But, but it's the church that gets a bad rap. That's the truth. Men and women are equal. And worth, dignity, value, it's what the Bible teaches. But that does not mean that in all relationships, both people are identical in their role. Scripture teaches that in some relationships, one Christian is called to voluntarily submit themselves to the other. As Christians were, as Christians were called in some relationships to voluntarily submit ourselves to the other person. And then, by the way, Scripture, in this case, in these three pairs of relationship, also gives instruction to the person that's the head of the relationship or the authority figure in the relationship. And we'll, get, we'll see that as it comes. And, of course, that's the husband part. So, so Scripture's telling us, from the creator of marriage, for marriage to work, one part of that is wives being willing to submit to their husbands. That doesn't mean husbands control their wives. It means husbands lovingly lead their wives. And that's what Scripture's saying. And you can't get around it, and you can't wiggle through it, and you can't find other Scriptures that say anything that makes us that different. It's just what Scripture says. And it's offensive to people. And the Bible offends everybody. At some point or another, the Bible offends every culture because the Bible did not come from a culture. The Bible came from God, our creator. Now, husbands, the next part of that, right? Husbands, it's interesting because it's all three pairs. Paul starts with the, the subordinate role in the relationship. But he also gives instructions to the person who's not the subordinate. In this case, the husband's. And he's telling the husbands, you know, that, that they're to love in a self-sacrificing way. And this is interesting because he's saying, submit to one another. Here's what I mean. In these three relationships, there's a subordinate role in each of these three relationships. But the biggest part of the text is actually the description of Christ's love for the church and Christ's love for us. And now the husband's love should model that. So even though he's talking about submission, the biggest part of the text has to do with the husband's role. In leadership, which is to give his life 
for his wife, just like Christ gave his life for us. And when I say that, I don't mean husbands. Yeah, if a burglar came in, you would step between the, the armed bandit and your wife and you would be willing to lay down your life. Yeah, right, right. We get that. That's true. And you should be able to do that. No, I'm saying Monday morning, you should be willing to lay down your life for your wife in the way you treat her every single day. That's what scripture is saying. Self-sacrificially loving your wife all the time. All the time. And by the way, when you get that right, it will be very easy for your wife to yield to your leadership. But wives, you can't wait for that. Because God's not saying, hey, if your husband does everything right, yield to the relationship, his leadership. God's telling us to do this no matter what our spouse is doing, both ways. Husbands, love your wife self-sacrificially. Whether she's doing her role or not, it does not matter. This is how we follow Christ as an individual. Christian husbands are called to love like Jesus loved. If that doesn't compute for you, if you say love, maybe, maybe there's guys here that have heard, you know, we talk about this a couple of times a year, and it's, yeah, self-sacrificial love. I think I do that. I go to work every day. That, that's not what he's talking about. And maybe I need to just simplify it for you. What does your husband, what, husbands, what does your wife need from you most? Maybe it's time. Because I think a lot of wives just need time. Well, sacrifice and give them time self-sacrificially love them by giving them time why well because that's what they need and you're supposed to do anything they need these instructions are for us as believers in marriage non-believers don't believe this stuff we don't expect them to that's okay this is for believers So men, single men, this is why it is dangerous to love somebody in a self-sacrificing way who is not a believer. It's, It's grueling. It's harder. You're still called to do it whether your spouse is a believer or not. So men, single men, before you get married... It's dangerous to marry a non-believer because you're self-sacrificially trying to love somebody who's not doing what they should do in the relationship or what you might expect as a believer. And you have to do it anyway. Women, ladies, single ladies. This is why, because God calls us to this as a follower of Christ, this is why it is dangerous for you To submit yourself to a man who doesn't have Jesus in him. Does that make sense? That's why scripture is telling us as believers, marry a believer. Because it's going to be harder to do what God has called you to do if your spouse is not a believer. It's just going to make it more difficult So keep that in mind when you're choosing your spouse. I remember Pam and I, when our kids were growing up and they were teenagers, we drilled this into them. Hey, you know, 
Someday somebody's going to ask you out or you're going to ask somebody out. We're expecting our girls to be asked out and our son to do the asking in our house. And when that happens, do not ask out a young lady that's not a believer. And girls, you will not be going on a date with a young man who's not a believer. And, oh, and I don't mean that they just say they're a believer. Saying they're a believer means nothing to me. I mean that we can see from their, that they say they're a believer and then we can see that in their life. We can see that their life has demonstrated the change of being a believer. That's the rules in the Pinkerton house. Which, by the way, had served us well. They're all three married to people who take their faith seriously. Lead your children. And that's another, we'll get to there, all right? If you're a believer and you're hearing all this, you say, Kevin, you don't understand. I love this guy. And I think he's going to become a believer. And we may get married first. And I'm super confident God's going to do something here. Maybe you should talk to somebody who's married to a non-believer. Maybe you should get some advice for somebody in that situation. And that might bring some clarity because it's challenging. And I know many people here are believers married to non-believers. It happens a lot because sometimes uh, you were a Christian and you hadn't really been taught that. Or for whatever reason you went ahead and married a person. Or maybe you thought they were a believer. You thought they were close to becoming a believer. And so you got married and they're not a believer. Or other people, you're both non-believers and then one of you became a believer. That's what happened to my mother. She became a believer after she got married. And if that's your situation, I just want to tell you that here at Grace, we are here to help you fulfill your role in marriage. To teach you, help you, counsel you, point you to God's word and what it means to follow Christ in marriage for you as a husband or you as a wife. For a wife, this is especially complicated. Hey, if we want to come alongside you and help you. You could come in and get counsel from a pastor or we have Jess, our, who is our ministry, ladies, uh, women's ministry director. And, and we will help you, assist you, give you resources, come alongside you as your brothers and sisters of Christ to help you submit to your husband in everything unless it contradicts what scripture is specifically telling you. That you'd give over to leadership. Not to be controlled to be led. And that brings us to the next section. And by the way, just speaking about that, wife, if your husband is leading you or wanting you to do something that's against what Scripture says, then what you should do is follow God. If if that's the choice, i got to do what God clearly says here. Not what I think he says, not how I think he would do. No, God clearly tells me to do this. My husband's telling me to do something different. You follow God and you do it as respectfully to your husband as possible. Does that make sense? And then he gives instructions to family. That's the next section. And by the way, before you even get to family, if there's any young singles in here, teenagers, 
You know, God's called us in marriage to love and respect. Husbands love, wives respect. That's the way it's wrapped up in verse 33. And while you're at home, God has, has, is using your home as a training ground so that you can figure out how love and respect works. And it's called honoring and obeying your parents. And I know some teachers are like, Kevin, you know, my mom, I mean, my, you, my mom. Yeah, well, in about 10 years, that's going to be my wife. You're just going to shift all that stuff to your wife. Learn how to obey and honor now, and you won't be taking a bunch of baggage into your marriage. Next verse is Ephesians 6, 1, after verse 33. It says, children... Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. That was a promise. Verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children, did you catch it? Obey and honor. Parents, you realize this is on us to make sure that they are obeying and honoring. This is on us to make sure our kids are doing this. Obey and honor. And, and that means, hey, that we do what our parents ask as children living in their household with a right heart attitude. We do what they ask with a right attitude. Not just do it grumbling the whole way. We do what they ask with the right attitude. As we live with our parents, we do everything they ask unless it conflicts directly with what God's telling us to do. You don't murder somebody. You don't rob a bank. You know, you don't do, unless it conflicts with what God's telling us to do, you do what, God's, you do what your parents say. It means being respectful in word and action. Children must honor parents whether they deserve honor or not. It's a decision. And then in our day, a lot of times, there's children who grow up in their teens and then they sort of linger at home. So adult children no longer obey, they just honor. Let me rephrase that. Adult children who are financially independent and no longer live in the basement of their parents' house. No longer have to obey, but they still have to honor. And part of the way we honor is through respect to our parents. No, no matter where they are in the spectrum, no matter whether they're believers or not, we honor them. And part of honor, by the way, we know from Jesus' words in the New Testament, is that we take care of them in their old age. Any of my children here today, they take care of us. They're not. See, they're not even here for that. They take care of us. That's part of what honoring meant. Jesus has a whole exchange. Yeah, that's a whole other story. An exchange with some Pharisees about this very thing, how they were violating, honoring their parents. And then it says, fathers, and that's representative of parents, discipline and instruct. Discipline and instruct. Moms and dads, 
what we want most for our kids. As Christian moms and dads, what we should want most for our children is that they grow up to have a relationship with God. That's the best thing that we can give them. Education, whatever, that doesn't come close. A relationship with God, it's, it's the most valuable thing in the universe that they would receive Christ's gift of forgiveness. And so that's what we point them to. That's what we pray for them every single day. Until they give their lives to Christ. That's our prayer. Most important thing. And it's our responsibility as parents to teach them about God. To bring them to church. God's idea. Where another adult, hopefully, that they respect will also be not only teaching them about God, but will be teaching them they need to obey their parents. Don't miss this opportunity. Otherwise, your kids are going to be in their 30s and you'll be wondering what happened. What went wrong? And what went wrong is while the kids were still in your house a lot of the times. I read another study of spiritual practices that are common in kids who flourish as adults. People who, they're not, they just don't say they're Christians in their 30s. They're flourishing as Christians in their 30s. What were they doing as kids? A study actually fleshed all that out. Number one, those kids prayed. Number two, those kids read their Bible. Number three, those kids were serious about serving God in the church. Wow. That is what we need to encourage our kids in discipline and instruction. We should, and then, of course, we should model our relationship with Jesus. So they don't just hear us saying we're a Christian and looking at our lives going, this doesn't make sense. That they hear us saying that we're Christians, because we do have to talk as Christians and point them with words, but that our life backs it up. That our life demonstrates our, our faith. When we get things wrong, we ask for forgiveness. When we get it right, we're telling them how to live and we bring our faith into daily life. Well, yeah, I don't want to do that because God says I shouldn't do that. God would want me to do this. And then quickly, just this last relationship, which has to do with work. Continuing in verse 5, it says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service or as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord, not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether slave or free. And masters, verse 9, do the same things to them. And give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. Now... 
when I, and sometimes I'll usually we'll do a whole day, a whole Sunday on this or more work. It's so key. And we may do that later this year. But the point that we need to remember as we read this, because some people point, wow, here's, here's the Bible instructing slaves. That's the Bible supporting slavery. Okay, we'll debunk this myth. First of all, we have to just understand what slavery was in the first century. Not defending it, it was wrong. But we picture 18th century slavery in the 1700s. That's how we picture slavery, which was race-based and also based on kidnapping, that people were kidnapped, typically in the continent of Africa, and then sold, usually by other tribes, sold to slave traders, end up in America, and they were owned as property. First century slavery was not like that. First century slavery was that people, conquered people had to work, and occasionally people who got into a lot of debt would sell themselves into slavery. But in the Roman world, where maybe half the people were slaves, as you walked the streets of Rome, you would not be able to tell a slave from a free person. They dressed the same. Slaves were professionals, sometimes doctors, lawyers. It wasn't race-based. It wasn't based on kidnapping, which, by the way, the Bible condemns. And then in the New Testament, slaves are told... Besides this instruction, hey, if you can buy your freedom, buy your freedom. But if you can't, serve like you're serving Christ. Slaves were, in the first century Rome were allowed to earn their own money in addition to the work they did. for. They, they just had some rights. Again, not defending it, not saying that was right. It's just not 18th century slavery that we're thinking. Most slaves were white. You know, it just, it was different. They had rights, still wrong, but not as evil as 18th century slavery is what I'm trying to say. But it was still slavery. And in the Bible, we see principles that, by the way, there's other passages in the Bible where masters are encouraged to free their slaves, where slaves are encouraged to, to get their freedom if they can. But either way, Paul's telling them, and Scripture's telling them, God's telling them through his Spirit that, hey, serve with diligence, and masters, you have to treat slaves a certain way, like your brother and sister, that they're equal in value because you both have a God who is no respecter of persons. And so what are we saying here? Slaves, or with implications to our work relationships today, let's just say employees, slaves slash employees. He's saying, work hard like you're working for Jesus. Do you understand as a Christian, it's not acceptable for you to go to work and just sort of mail it in and just do the least that you could do until you could clock out or ride the clock at work? Yeah, I'll take the long way around to the clock, you know. We don't ride the clock because Scripture's telling us, hey, whoever we work for, work like we're working for Jesus. Work hard, be diligent, go the extra mile. That's what he's calling us to do as employees. That's what we should model. Be trustworthy. Your boss should, should not have to check on you to make sure you're doing your job. You're a Christian. Your boss should trust you that of anybody else, you're going to do your job.
If Paul's telling slaves, work hard like you're working for Jesus, how much more does that apply to us that we have the freedom to go to any job we want? We need to apply this. And then masters, employers, treat employees like equals. You know, as Christians, we're called to use our power and our wealth that we would leverage that to benefit people. And the best way to benefit people is to point them to Jesus. We use our power, our wealth, our position to help other people. That's what God wants for us, all of us. It's just some people have more wealth and more power and more position to do that more effectively. But hey, we're called to the same thing. We're, we're taught to treat others like we want to be treated because we are all equal before God. And it was the church. We did communion. It was the church in the first century that did something nobody... Even though you couldn't tell slaves from free people in Rome, there was still a social hierarchy. Masters did not intermix with slaves, except for their own, in, in, in social ways. But in the church, all the barriers are down. And we find masters washing the feet of slaves because in, when they walk in the doors of the church, when they meet as a group of believers, they understand we are all equal before God. Revolutionary in the first century. Never been taught ever in the world anything like that. Boy, I'm getting kind of loud here, aren't I? But you, you get it. And what's he saying? What's God telling us? Live out your faith. There are implications to being a believer, a serious believer, a real believer, that you'll demonstrate change in your life. And part of that is wives will submit to their husband's leadership. Husbands will give their lives to their wives, for their wives, and that's probably a bad way of saying it, that they will love them self-sacrificially every single day. That children would honor and obey their parents, that even adult children would honor their parents, that parents would point their kids to Christ and instruct them and discipline them. You got to get a grip on your kids. You got to teach them to obey. They're, they're going to need that. Don't need a friend if they're little. They need to be taught how to obey. And then they get a little older, you teach them how to, they've already learned how to obey, but then you add the moral reason why things should be done. As they start, are able to think about morality and right and wrong. And then you, you turn in, you kind of coach them. What, what are you thinking about this? Well, what would God say? And then later you get to become friends and it works. But you try that friendship when they're in middle school, not going to work. Anyway, sorry, God, anyway. There are implications. For Christians in parenting, there are implications for Christians as employees. There are implications for Christians as bosses. We're called to follow Christ in all these areas of our life. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for instruction because we need instruction because we have a culture telling us one thing and some of it's okay and some of it's not right. And Father, our relationship with you should trump everything. 
And God, we pray that, that those of us here who are followers, who are Christians, that you enable us, that you would empower us, that you give us wisdom to follow you in every area of our life and not play games with you, but turn it over to you. And Father, even though this is probably the last sermon that we would invite a non-Christian to, no doubt there are some here. And Father, we pray that you would just impress on them that you know them and that you love them and that you offer them forgiveness, love, self-sacrificial love by taking their place, by substituting yourself for their death like you did ours on the cross of Calvary. God, thank you for that greatest gift. And we pray that you'd help them to receive it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Have a great day. See you next Sunday and bring a friend.